I agree strongly with Jim that this genie is out of the bottle. This Detroit case, it was a horrible case where uh, a law-abiding citizen was caught because a, uh, his driving license photo was matched improperly. And it sort of takes driving while black to the next level, you know, having a driving license while black. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I think the answer has got to be how these technologies are used and what the process is, you know, improving them and, and having a fair process, which is similar to what the big guys have said. Amazon has put a one-year moratorium on selling the, the police. Microsoft has said they won't sell their recognition tech to the police until it's regulated. Welcome to episode 322 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. And the views we're about to express don't reflect the opinions of our clients, our firms, our institutions, uh, our families, or our pets. Uh, I'm going to interview uh, Chris Krebs today. He's the first and current director of DHS's uh, new cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency, talking about election security and a variety of other topics. Uh, but first, the news roundup with Maury Schenk, um, a former managing partner in Steptoe's London office. Jim Carafano, who's new to us this uh, uh, episode, uh, who works national security and foreign policy at the Heritage Foundation. Nick Weaver, uh, uh, familiar to all listeners, uh, uh, doing computer science at UC Berkeley. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur in today's program. Um, a lot of news uh, this week, but I think the most interesting legal tech news came out of Germany. Um, uh, Maury, uh, what did the uh, Supreme Court of Germany do? Well, the Supreme Court overturned a lower court decision and sided, sided with the Bundeskartellamt, the Federal Competition Authority, in a decision that required, from February 2019, that required Facebook to get consent before it combined data from its various services, WhatsApp, Instagram, and other third-party websites. And they real, the interesting thing about it is not so much about Facebook, but about their legal theory, which was a abusive dominant position theory. And that's a really big change to data protection law, because we're used to aggressive data protection law in Europe, but a single set of rules for everybody. The dominant position approach, which is what is done for electronic communication services law, means that there are different rules for companies that are deemed to be dominant. And it also shifts the enforcement from data protection authorities to competition authorities, which is a pretty big change if this catches on in other countries. Well, a cynic would say that uh, the Europeans looked around and said, you know, there's just an outside chance that maybe all this privacy stuff is going to affect a European company instead of the Americans that we're really shooting at. So let's make sure that uh, 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 the biggest companies get a special regulatory regime because they're all American. Uh but I'm not sure that's uh, that's that's it. I'm I actually more interested in what a change in position it is for competition theory. Um, abusive dominant position is a well-known uh, uh, antitrust doctrine. We've got something like it: monopolization uh, or abuse of a monopoly position. Uh, so it's it's not by itself. Um, completely outside what 
uh, antitrust law or competition law would uh, do. But dragging in privacy law and and trying to bring all of the tools that uh, privacy uh, that uh, antitrust law has to the rescue of privacy regulation is pretty new. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, Stuart, I don't think it's importing all of privacy law. There was a fairly the, the theory here was that Facebook users didn't really have a choice but to consent. And so basically, I, I assume the theory is Facebook is so widespread that you must use Facebook for certain purposes and you shouldn't be forced to give this consent when you join Facebook. So it's sort of re- regarding Facebook as an essential facility, more or less. And uh, you'd have to think about it, whether that would import all aspects of privacy law to competition law. I don't think so. But it's a really interesting. It's a really interesting theory. Yeah. So I, I I think you're right. It wouldn't necessarily bring it all in. We had Noah Phillips on, who's a FTC commissioner, uh, uh, maybe six months or a year ago, talking about exactly this and raising real doubts about whether it made sense to use antitrust law to um, foster uh, privacy values. Uh, and I thought he he made a pretty good point that it isn't clear what the dominant position is here and why privacy regulation cures a competition problem. It might cure a a privacy problem, but uh, uh, you know it, it's not like consumers are competing with Facebook. Right? Uh, they are doing business with Facebook. Uh, and and so to bring dominant position to bear on uh, the rights of customers is an unusual step. Yeah, I agree. And privacy law itself is broad enough to consider this. Privacy law, as you're not shy to point out, is an extremely malleable, squishy concept that the privacy regulars, regulators regularly consider the position of the regulated entity in deciding what is proper conduct, as has happened in some of the Schrems disputes with Facebook. So I, I, I think it's an, it's an odd extension. It is. It's, it's probably bad law. One of the problems with abuse of a dominant position is <clears throat> once you find somebody has a dominant position, uh, there, there's this vast array of discretion that opens up before you about what remedies, what regulations you're going to impose. Somebody at the FCC once said, you know, my, our job really here is to nudge monopolists in the right direction. And and that's kind of, once you've found somebody has a dominant position, you can nudge them in any direction you want. So it, it this this doctrine leads to very faddish regulation unless you're quite disciplined about saying, I am trying to solve the problem of dominance, uh, not uh, uh, just find dominance and then impose my particular uh, uh, regulatory values on the company that I have at my mercy. Uh, not sure that that's what the, uh, uh, the German authorities have done here. Well, in the electronic communications services space, we have the dominant position regulation in Europe. And there's very specific rules about how that's applied. To suddenly take it to privacy, it's much. There's no such set of rules, and I think the German authorities then do end up with discretion as broad as you assert. And I don't think that's that's good. It's bad for the European tech sector. 
So good chance that then that the, uh, this will get taken to the European Court of Justice on the theory that uh, uh, the doctrine may be good German law, but it's not good European law. So uh, this case may not be over after all, notwithstanding that the Supreme Court of Germany has spoken. All right. Uh, the Rubicon has been crossed. Uh, uh, Bill Barr uh, got the encryption bill that the Justice Department has been looking for for 15 years and that no administration before this one was willing to allow justice to advocate for directly. Uh, uh, Senator Graham, Tom Cotton, Marsha Blackburn have all uh, co-sponsored the Lawful Access to Encrypted Data Act. And it is, I would say, it is a hundred proof uh, um, uh, lawful access. There, there are not a lot of compromises in this, are there, uh, Jim? Well, I, you know, I'm not sure the Rubicon's been been crossed. You know, certainly somebody's got the boat out and and they've got their paddles. Um, you know, I think the important thing here, and this is coming from the perspective, and make sure your listeners understand, I am not a lawyer, nor politics. I'm just a policy guy at the Heritage Foundation. But um, although there is for the administration on this really aggressive approach to uh, government law enforcement access to encrypted data. Um, the, there isn't a uniform, and some prominent conservatives on this, the, there is not a, a uniform position among conservatives that this is the way to go. And I don't think that we have hit in the political space yet quite kind of a, a left-right divide on that, that there's a, that the right is for law and order and they want uh, uh access and 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 then the other side does i think i think we're still a bit all over the space on this and i think among conservatives there's real genuine concerns with with this uh approach um for the same reason you know we saw what happened when we had a very aggressive uh protection approach for example in itar with things like um drones and satellites where we created really kind of ironclad or which um, approaches, which essentially uh, created a market for other people. And I think that's one of the great concerns here is that something this aggressive would actually make U U.S. companies less competitive, would actually incentivize people to turn to other encryption systems uh, that the U.S. would have no insight into. And so I don't think there's, I don't think wa there's a Washington consensus yet that that uh, this is the way to go. So I agree with you that uh, uh, Mike Lee, for example, will die in a ditch to stop this bill. I, um, and he's a, he thinks of himself as a good conservative uh, Republican. I, I think you're completely wrong and you've been sold a bill of goods about how this is going to hurt U.S. industry because what it basically says is if you sell a product in the United States and you have more than a million users, uh, uh, then you have to do this. And it doesn't matter whether your telegraph uh, uh, sold uh, you know, by a Russian uh, operating out of Germany or, uh, or Apple you're going to be subject to the requirement to build in access. Uh, um, and if companies like Apple want to offer uh, their service without access outside the United States, they can do that until the law changes in those other countries. So I don't, I don't really think this will have the kind of impact that export controls had on U.S. industry. Uh, Nick, I know you're dying to, to trash this bill, so uh, uh, hop in. Okay, so I'm going to trash it because it is an absolutely catastrophic attack on security 
And it also indicates that there will never actually be a compromise in this space. So the law enforcement access problem is actually two separate access problems. It's access to encrypted devices like a phone and access to encrypted communication. Now, the problem is, is any exceptional access mechanism to get the access, you need two things, the data and one or a few master secrets. Now, this led to the possibility of a compromise because for the data at rest problem, the phone, you can mitigate the loss of the master secrets because you still require access to the phone. This is the Carnegie Report approach. This right. is the Matt Tate approach. Um, and I agree with that approach. The problem and why this bill is so bad is that they looked at the compromise. They understood that there was a possible compromise. And then they just went and did this awful attack on secure communication anyway. You can't build VPNs. You can't build the web browser um, because the web browser is a communications device. Uh, your TLS encryption that is protecting your credit cards is under this bill would have to be vulnerable to a master secret. And these master secrets go walkabout. Just ask that uh, South African bank whose master issuing secret for their credit cards walked out the door. So first, I, I, on the, the notion that this is a rejection of all compromise, uh, I, that's a very engineer-specific objection. I used to get that when I worked at, uh, at NSA. All the engineers would design a perfect optimized solution to a social problem and say, let's propose that. And then they were shocked when that's where negotiations started and they were forced to back off of it. Uh, I, I, I think until industry actually comes to the table and says, we will sign on to the compromise that uh, uh, gives people access to phones, but not data in motion. There's no point in DOJ signaling in advance that it'll take that deal. Um, at the same time, there's no point in trusting the legislative process when they have basically shown they will listen they will understand that there's a distinction. It is a huge distinction that these two problems are separate. And instead of doing a bill that would um, naturally uh, not get the unified front from the technologists by saying just the data at rest and the uh, pen register portion, um, they instead went all in. This is not a negotiating position. This is a way of well, saying no, of course we not. Won't it, well, it's what they want. They are asking for the, what they want. They can't get it if they don't ask for it. Uh, uh, they aren't going to get it. Uh, and what they uh, in want fact, I, is I'm predicting absolute industry. suicide. What? That from a technical standpoint, this is an absolute suicide bill. The NSA I do, has I built. I disagree. The NSA it, has built these sorts of backdoors before. The uh, dual EC. Um, there is a random secret called E sitting in an NSA vault. If a NSA employee, even now, years after people have stopped using dual EC, walked into the Chinese embassy with E, they could get a one-way ticket to Beijing and a check for 10 million bucks. So, uh, but, you know, and the NSA industry has, industry has, has no has way built of knowing that hasn't into, happened. It, 
really, I, I, the, the industry has built backdoors into their uh, uh, data in motion technology uh, and uh, uh, through updates, if nothing else. Uh, and they are very careful about protecting update uh, uh, tools, but those tools will allow them to add arbitrary code that would allow them to intercept all communications uh, from a particular phone. Um, and they don't say, oh, oh my gosh, that's such a, an engineering failure that we have to stop selling, uh, providing updates. They just say, well, be really careful with your update tools. Also, we uh, do a lot of code signing and attestation. And the biggest uh, push these days is towards transparency mechanisms so that um, you can't do a secret update. You can't do a update that's targeted at a specific device rather than all devices. Yeah, but I have to say, I think half of those, uh, at least, of those new initiatives are about trying to make it impossible to do what the government is asking for. It's not about securing it from attackers other than uh, uh, lawmakers. Uh, this is about trying to write code that makes it impossible to change the U.S. code. Uh, and I think, frankly, that's obnoxious and arrogant on the part of uh, Silicon Valley. As opposed to deliberate attempts that sabotage the one success we've really had in security over the past decade and a half. Yeah, because that has, has also enabled certain kinds of crimes that are just, you know, loathsome and enable people to, uh, uh, to thumb their nose at law enforcement. Uh, that's not a sustainable position in a, a country that wants to enforce its laws. Uh, Do you want um, to be so able to have a business partner travel to China and communicate back with you securely? Yes, I want them to be able to. But I, and you know, frankly, if they go to China and communicate securely back to me, and the U.S. government has the ability to get access to that after it's gotten an intercept order, I'll live with that risk. Except that it won't just be the U.S. government; it will be the Chinese government too. And with the compromise scenarios, the U.S. government would actually have no way of knowing if the Chinese had successfully stolen the master secret. And if you don't mind me saying, the Chinese have a hundred ways to get access to that information, and they're using most of them, including telling us we have to use tax uh, uh, software that's got a backdoor built into it. Uh, we're not going to solve this problem because uh, Signal is perfect, because they're going to find a way to hack the phone the you know, within five minutes of you turning it on at the airport. Uh, it, it, so I, the, the idea that this is about protecting us from China, the Chinese, I think it's, it's another phony argument. If China has a zero day for an iPhone, they aren't going to use it indiscriminately. If they have a backdoor for the communication channel, they will use it everywhere. That's the problem. So okay, I, we will uh, we will continue this argument. Uh, it's um, uh, it, it it will be it is now officially joined. This is why I think the Rubicon's been crossed, Jim. Uh, it uh, uh, th this debate always had a kind of subterranean element to it because the FBI and the Justice Department couldn't really say this is the bill we want um, a, and uh, and testify in favor of it because OMB acting for every administration before this always said, no, don't, don't do that. that. That'll just make people mad. All right. Uh, so speaking of um, 
the Chinese requiring us to install back doors in order to pay our taxes, that seems to be exactly what's going on. It's a kind of uh, not Petya, but commercialized and normalized, right, Maury? Well, it's one case at least. Uh, Trustwave has reported a case that a Chinese bank required its unspecified customer to install install some Chinese-made tax software to pay local tax called Intelligent Tax. It came for free with uh, an additional program called Golden Spy, which was extremely capable and sophisticated and difficult to uninstall malware, uh, with which could take full control of the customer's computers. So this isn't an unusual thing in the world now, but I guess in China, it, it does illustrate that you really need to take particular care about this sort of thing. And I think secondly, there's a real point that the line between what's being done by government and what's being done privately is, is quite blurry in China. Yeah, I, I, I do think that there's a, at least a um, small chance that the Chinese saw what the Russians had done with NotPetya, which was attaching it to a Ukrainian tax payment software uh, that uh, anybody who operated in Ukraine had to use, um, and then blowing up their entire network, uh, that the Chinese said, huh, that's a great idea. Why don't we do that? But just instead of blowing up people's networks, we'll just make them install backdoors. Uh, um, so it, it is a kind of knock-on effect from not, not Petya, or at least that may be the case. So Nick, I I, I do want to uh, ask about uh, Julian Assange. Uh, uh, there's a new Justice Department um, prosecution or uh, uh, indictment out with much more detail about him that I think they don't add any charges because all of this stuff is now past the point of um, uh, the statute of limitations having run. But the facts, I think, just kind of leave us thinking, uh, this is not about the First Amendment. This is just a garden variety conspiracy to commit uh, 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 computer intrusions. Yes, there's a lot more focus on the computer crime aspects, um, which is a relief because the computer crime charge was always the least politically, or at least First Amendment sensitive. And so... um, this restructuring, as well as helps frame the narrative, helps uh, shape the discussion, and will probably help in extraditing the rapist. Yep. Um, so it, it 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 really does put Assange a lot deeper in the hole than he was. Uh, and uh, the more people focus on the facts that are here, the less attractive he's going to be as a uh, civil liberties hero. Also, the other thing is, is it does add some more information on the back and forth between Assange and Manning. Um, And apparently, uh, a couple of people have been going through that, and there should hopefully be some good write-ups in the next couple of days. What do you think it tells us about the the, uh, conversations with Manning? Uh, That they have uh, better records than they they've been able to discover better records. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's in some ways a sad statement that Assange gets so much loyalty from people who deserved better. Um, 
Yeah. Because it would well, be a much he's, easier he's not case. The, he's not make. the most attractive. He's, he's not the most attractive human being on the planet, uh, uh, or maybe even in uh, prison. Um, all right, Jim. Uh, face recognition has been demonized uh, systematically over the last year or two by NGOs and then by the press. Uh, the ACLU has added um, a little bit of data and uh, drama to that uh, demonization uh, in uh, a case in Detroit. What's, uh, what's going on there? So, so this is a case where the technology actually got it wrong and allegedly they arrested the wrong person. I, I think this is an important story. I think it says less about the, the, the demonization of the technology because, look, they can demonize it all they want. We are, we are crashing full speed ahead globally on facial recognition technology, and it's just here to stay. So that, that genie's out of all the bottles. But I, but I think it's a, it's a, it's a great case study and a reminder that the, of the, the fallibility of technologies. And when you think, for example, even now in DNA, which look, all the, the cases we see where People look at DNA, they relook DNA, they got contrasting DNA evidence, uh, blessing fingerprints and everything else. Facebook is, uh, uh, facial recognition technology is, it falls into that, into that same camp. And so we're going to have a burgeoning of, uh, an enriching discussion, debate and fueling technologists about this technology because it's just, it's not infallible and it's not going to be. And as we use it in more legal proceedings and other things, uh, there's going to be a lot more debating about what, what you're actually seeing, everything from like deep fakes to the reliability of, of, of the, the records that you have on hand. Maury, uh, uh, England is, is, is where um, uh, closed circuit TV really came into its own. Is um, face recognition also being used or is it subject, uh, you know, suffering from the same uh, uh, attacks that it's seeing here in the U.S.? Uh, the Metropolitan Police have used it some in London with uh, with a lack of accuracy, a similar problem. But I, I agree strongly with Jim that this genie is out of the bottle. This Detroit case, it was a horrible case where uh, a law-abiding citizen was caught because a, uh, his driving license photo was matched improperly. And it sort of takes driving while black to the next level, you know, having a driving license while black. Uh, but... Um, you know, I, I think the answer has got to be how these technologies are used and what the process is, you know, improving them and, and having a fair process, which is similar to what the big guys have said. Amazon has put a one year moratorium on selling the, the police. Microsoft has said they won't sell their recognition tech to the police until it's regulated. And I think this goes in the direction of we need better rules, but we are going to do it. Yeah. And, and you know, I was prepared to say they actually did a better job than they're getting credit for because they, they actually did a um, uh, six pack uh, uh, witness identification of the guy after they got his name and uh, uh, went down. To, they went back to the uh, clerk uh, in the store where the shoplifting occurred uh, and said, "Can you identify the guy out of these six people?" And and the guy picked out uh, the fellow who was arrested. But it turned out that he wasn't really a witness. He had just seen the same videotape that everybody else saw. So it, it just was a problem with the videotape not not being good and the software not being particularly accurate. Uh, uh, and, and there is some evidence that uh, um, it, racial minorities 
uh, since there are fewer of them of them for the machine to learn on, uh, get less accurate uh, identification. So yeah, I think the answer is going to be uh, more uh, machine learning will probably reduce the error rate. In fact, uh, the error rate for Asians um, is still not zero in the United States with the uh, equipment that's been um, uh, trained here. But the equipment that's been trained in Asia by Asian companies is uh, as accurate with Asian faces as with anybody else. So it's just a question of numbers, I suspect, uh, um, plus having some procedures that say, this makes you a suspect. It doesn't give us grounds to lock you up. Yeah, they arrested this guy in front of his uh, wife and kids. Oh, yeah, no, dragged out. Uh, uh, and, and then and then when they, they let him go, they didn't really let him go, and they stuck him out in the rain. Uh, it was just, you know, it was a, um, a, a crappy scene all around. Uh, um, and uh, But uh, some of that is just that's the police for you because that's, that's how, they, uh, how they operate. A big rotten barrel. Well, it's it's just a it's 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 not a good job, uh, and um, it, it, after a while, you start to get inured to um, the the petty indignities that you impose on people. Just as uh, hospital workers get inured to their patients dying, uh, it doesn't make them bad people, but it uh, it is not uh, uh, it does not produce good customer service. So Facebook is being boycotted, sort of. Uh, people are a lot of, of uh, advertisers are saying, "I'm out for the month of July," uh, because um, uh, Facebook is not doing enough on hate speech and voter fraud and voter suppression. Um, uh, Nick, uh, you had a, an interesting observation suggesting that uh, uh, maybe. Uh, the people who were bailing on Facebook were just A-B testing and they were going to take a month off and see if their uh, uh, numbers improved. I think so. So um, Facebook does have some real problems with their radicalization engine. Like the Boogaloo movement has been directly responsible for two murders, one of a federal agent, one of a sheriff's deputy in California alone. And that's directly spread from Facebook. Um, the advertisers are seeing pressure to not advertise on Facebook, but they're all doing it as a temporary pause. So it's a great excuse for a company to stop advertising on Facebook for a month or two, go, see, we're being all whatever, um, while at the same time, basically seeing if it does make a difference, that um, advertising might be oversold on its value, especially on Facebook. And so this gives the brands a chance to test whether, yeah, maybe we shouldn't be spending so much on Zuck. Well, especially in a time of uh, coronavirus, when uh, uh, advertising budgets are taking a hit, this is this is a, a free way to cut your advertising budget without looking like you're cutting your advertising budget uh, uh, at a time when your 
competitors are probably also looking for an excuse to cut theirs. So yeah, you're right. It does make sense. And and announcing that you're going to suspend for a period of time means you never have to announce when you go crawling back to uh, to buy uh, ads from Facebook. Uh, uh, and so nobody nobody uh, gets mad at you. All right. One one last. Uh, uh, well, Jim, I, uh, did you have any thoughts on this? Uh, 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 either the boycott or, frankly, uh, uh, Zuckerberg's promises to do better about uh, enforcing uh, uh, the uh, uh, the official narrative on voter fraud and suppression. So I think it's really interesting. I actually think it's a three sided problem. On the one hand, is the social consciousness versus market decision. Personally, I think I, I thought the comments were right. It'll work that way out. But the, the the third side is this gets you know back to the problem of 230. So if Facebook reactively starts some of this and starts to change their community standards and everything else to, to make the advertisers happy, then, then more and more we're going to increasingly get into the argument that these platforms are no longer neutral platforms, editing and creating content, and it's just going to make that whole 230 issue even more. I don't want to be him. But you know what? Yep. When you got a gazillion billion dollars and you only lose seven billion, what the heck? <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't think he's uh, he's worrying about uh, the the stock markets change. Uh, um, uh, he wants this company to be in business and making money for him thirty and forty years from now, and that's a heavy responsibility by itself. All right. Um, speaking actually of hanging on your to your 230 uh, uh, exemption the department of homeland security I, I don't think they necessarily intended to do this but i wouldn't rule it out either uh basically told a bunch of tech companies that they wanted to make sure that those tech companies were not in allowing people to incite violence and to talk about how to evade the police uh, um a, during the uh um, the time of unrest that we've seen in the last month or so. Um, and so uh, DHS is really, I think, Nick, uh, asking these guys to do a better job of taking down um, uh, incitements to carry out low-level attacks on police and statues and um, uh, retail shops. Uh, um, and apparently... Uh, some of that stuff has been slipping by, which I guess is not a surprise. Well, it also depends on the platform. So in some ways, this reads like DHS doing some sort of political posturing, but it does highlight that there are some big problems in these spaces. So I keep mentioning the Boogaloos. That is a 4chan-derived movement of basically Second Amendment cosplayers dreaming of a second civil war. And these groups have been thriving on Facebook. Um, and Facebook has been taking a very hands-off approach. Um, Twitter has been a bit more on the topple the statue business, but that seems to be fairly light. Um, and so it's in some ways, reads like political posturing, but in others, it's a serious problem. Yes, I I I I think you're right. Uh, certainly, um, if people are um, ramping each other up and inciting violence, uh, that's not even First Amendment protected. So, uh, we ought to be able to uh, be pretty aggressive in taking that down. 
Twitter was also, kind of to my surprise, pretty aggressive in taking on DDO Secrets. Uh, uh, basically, after DDO Secrets did blue leaks and put out uh, uh, hundreds of uh, uh, gigabytes of data about law enforcement agencies that included a lot of names of victims and uh, um, police officers, Twitter permanently suspended its account, uh, uh, which is a surprise to me. Maybe less surprise is that people on the left are complaining about Twitter, uh, claiming that they uh, uh, inaccurately said that DDO, DDO Secrets uh, um, was engaged in activity that it wasn't really engaged, engaged in. But it's pretty clear they were doxing a lot of people. Yeah. And um the Twitter terms of service specifically have stolen data among the things you aren't supposed to distribute. Um, the interesting question is why haven't they done the same to WikiLeaks? Um, and, that is a good question. WikiLeaks and, claims that they that they are responsible and they take they take out the, <laughs> the, the personal data. Ah. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> uh, but then, uh, you know, Assange says he's a First Amendment hero, so I, I guess we can take it all with the same grain of salt. All yeah. right, Devin Nunes, I, you know, I, I, I need to move on uh, uh, because Devin Nunes Cow has kicked his butt in uh, federal court. Um, actually, it was state court. Um, it, it, he uh, he lost basically at Section two hundred and thirty defense uh, uh, when he sued. Uh, the parody account Devin Nunes Cow uh, for defamation. And uh, the court said in what has to be a completely foregone conclusion, uh, no, you can't, uh, you can't do that. That's exactly why Section 230 was passed. And I think that's true. Uh, well, uh, a minor detail. Yep. It was he was suing Twitter as well as the cat. That's, you're right. You're quite right. Twitter going. Twitter gets the defense. The cow is, is naked. If they can, yeah, if they can, and but the but Twitter managed to fight the subpoena to unravel the cow. So the cow is still being sued, but Devin needs to move on because he doesn't know who the cow is. Yeah, that's interesting. I uh, the usual rule is you have to establish that you have a prima facie defamation case, and then the courts will issue a um. Uh, subpoena for the identity of the party that uh, is behind the anonymous account. Uh, and I would have thought, you know, that if he's got even a halfway decent defamation case, uh, uh, that uh, the court would have um, released that, uh, uh, would have issued the subpoena. Um, is there some other reason why uh, Nunes is not getting his, uh, um, uh, his subpoena issued? Because this lawsuit was pure uh, BS, um, something a actual dairy farmer would be familiar with. Um, <laughs> the yes. cow is a clear parody, and the only reason he brought the case in Virginia rather than in Fresno, where he's actually a resident, is that under California slap law, he would be on the hook for massive legal fees. Yes. Okay. So he's taking advantage of the fact that we're much more gentlemanly here in Virginia than uh, they are in California, where they have to enforce their rules with massive damages. Probably right. Okay, Nick, I, uh, let me ask you about this one. Uh, um, the uh, Comcast is um, uh, going to do 
DNS over HTTPS. Uh, uh, that's part of the whole DOH movement, which is slowly gathering steam. Um, is there anything particularly interesting about that other than the fact that I simply cannot talk about DOH without imagining Homer Simpson saying it? Yes. And it's actually a very interesting thing. So Comcast has, over the past few years, run a very clean service. Um, and what supporting DOH for Firefox means is that Comcast has agreed to contractual restrictions on selling data. The privacy aspects of DOH are actually mostly garbage because you then contact servers. But um, the contractual protections are quite significant. And so this is basically, in some ways, Comcast going, we are willing to sign a contract for doing behavior we were already going to do, already doing. Um, but we're going we're gonna to let uh, Firefox, uh, uh, Mozilla, enforce it. Right. And it, I think it was, in some ways, that when your DNS provider screws up, your net stops working and you call customer service. And yes. so if Firefox stopped working because Cloudflare screwed up, Comcast would be the one dealing with the calls. So now Comcast, by being the DOH provider for Firefox customers in Comcast network, will be in a position where they'll only get those calls when it actually is their fault. Fascinating. So everybody's um, economic interests suddenly align. Uh, Firefox wants to be, or Mozilla wants to be a privacy campaigner. Comcast wants to get credit for doing good things on privacy, uh, and they want to cut down on customer service calls. Uh, uh, and this uh, this allows everybody to, to get what they want. Yep. Okay. And as <laughs> uh, uh, Poor Alexei Burkhoff ain't getting what he wanted. Uh, he pleaded guilty. Uh, he's the hacker that was uh, in Israel uh, that the Russians fought to keep from. He's a Russian hacker uh, that the Russians were trying to keep in Israel and away from the Americans. They failed. Uh, uh, he's over here. He pleaded guilty. He could be talking as far as anybody knows. But he got a nine-year sentence, which doesn't sound like he was talking about much. All right. Well, let's turn to our interview. It's with Chris Krebs. He's been on before. He's the director of DHS's uh, Cyber, Secu Cyber Security and Infrastructure Security Administration. Uh, uh, and uh, Chris, welcome. Hey, thanks, sir, for having me on. Oh, it's, it's a pleasure. Um, so I, you've been very active over the last really year and a half on election security issues. CISA has, it, it was a top priority until a couple of other things came along that uh, equaled it. Uh, and let me just ask, uh, overall, where are we in securing the 2020 election? So I think we're, we're in fairly good shape, particularly as you look back over time, the last couple of years. Some real significant metrics that I'd point out, you know, in 2016, uh, about two, what, 82, 80 percent of votes were cast with a paper ballot backup. Now we're on track for about a 92 percent rate. And, and that's a pretty significant change. But I think the, the things that CIS has really been focusing on over the last couple of years, three cut across three buckets, uh, primary buckets. First is 
building a security culture and community across the uh, election administration uh, community. Build an ISAC. There wasn't an ISAC prior to 2016. Stood one up. Have all 50 states involved. And at this point, about this is 6, an information sharing uh, yeah, advisory yeah, yeah. council, right? Yeah. Yep. In, in election infrastructure, information sharing, and analysis center. It's a good way to get threat information out there, risk information, uh, make tools available. Uh, again, didn't exist prior to the 2018 election. We got it up and running now. Uh, also built a infrastructure council where we can bring state and local officials together with the private sector to discuss emerging issues. Uh, I'd also offer the, the technical assistance we offer, vulnerability scanning, uh, penetration testing, incident response, uh, training, exercises, again, things that didn't really uh, exist at scale. Previously, we got them up and running, and it, we think it's made a real difference. We've, we've seen over the last year and a half the election uh, community cut their patch rates in half, uh, meaning the time to patch is, is reduced substantially, which is, which is a great thing right now. And then lastly, really help foster a community uh, within the federal interagency, working with Cybercom, NSA, FBI, the Election Assistance Commission, We've got a real good playbook right now on how to partner, how to work together, and that'll pay dividends in the long run. In fact, we're using that same playbook on COVID response. Well, so COVID just makes this all harder, right? Uh, most of the people who are running elections uh, are part-timers, uh, volunteer labor. So on election day, you're going to have a whole bunch of people who now are trying to function in mass or aren't going to come. Uh, and you're trying to run uh, technology uh, more securely than it's ever been run before. How, how do you see that happening? Well, I think we've got a couple challenges here. First is, as you pointed out, um, there's a level of concern and uncertainty. You've already seen it happen in the primaries where uh, poll workers who tend to be retired um, and maybe in a higher at risk cohort uh, to COVID have, have actually backed out of volunteering. And so what we really are looking for here, and this is across the country, uh, more folks to get out there and volunteer to support the election. And, and really what we need is, is about a million poll workers between now and November to, to step up. Um, but as you pointed out, the mechanism for voting is also shifting. Uh, in some cases, you are seeing states take a absent, increased absentee uh, mail uh, or voting approach or shifting to, to mail-in ballots. And in fact, if you look at New Jersey, New Jersey was one of those states that had those machines that don't have paper ballot backups. And that's been a significant um, concern for years. And they're they're trying to shift quickly to a mail-in approach, which we think is good. I mean, again, we want to go to that 80 percent from 80 percent voting uh, with a with a ballot a paper ballot backup to 92 percent. So if they can make that shift rapidly, um, that you, we can certainly address one of the risks we're concerned about. But but just to be clear, right, um, every form of voting has some kind of risk associated with it. And so uh, really trying to get an understanding on what those risks are, get the mitigation measures out there uh, to our partners. And again, we take our partners as they come to us, whether they're, you know, mail-in, whether they're voting in person uh, or, or early voting, whatever, uh, and, and we'll continue to provide those cybersecurity and physical security uh, protections to them. So I, this is not your sweet spot, but I assume that it's part of what you uh, worry about. The, the New Jersey mail-in approach seems to have been done in the worst possible way. They just 
shipped out ballots to anybody without even a request. And there are stories of the piles of them being dumped in uh, uh, apartment uh, lobbies. Uh, there have been arrests for um, uh, uh, vote fraud already in the in uh, Patterson, um, uh, which I guess knowing Patterson might not be a surprise. Uh, but I, uh, it's one thing to say if you ask for a mail in ballot, we'll send it to you. It's another thing to say, hey, anybody want a ballot? Here, here have a ballot. Yeah, so so going through the primaries, I think again this rapid shift is uh, a, a lot of different folks have taken different approaches. Uh, good time period now for reflection and lessons learned from the primaries moving into the general in November. Uh, confident that a lot of those those hiccups will get addressed uh, between now and then. So let me ask you this: thinking about um, uh, the 2020 election. If you are the GRU, you've obviously been watching all of our preparations, which is one of the problems uh, uh, that uh, information security has. Uh, unlike FEMA, we've got a, uh, a live adversary who can counter our uh, preparations. Uh, if, if, if you are the GRU and, and uh, as they are want, you were having a, a hold my beer uh, moment, uh, it, it just said, what, what will shock the Americans at our audacity? What would you do to, to mess with our elections? Well, I, you know, <laughs> welcome to the hellscape that's my head. I've been thinking about these sorts of issues now for a solid year, really trying to game out worst case scenarios. But at the same time, not just focusing on the Russians, particularly the GRU, but also thinking, okay, if the Chinese wanted to get involved, what could they do? Uh, but in the meantime, really trying to understand the underlying risk in the systems. And I think sometimes when we focus a lot on the nation state level adversaries, the APT, we kind of miss what's right in front of us. And that's what was behind uh, an initiative we launched last summer, uh, the Voter Registration Database uh, Ransomware Initiative. Basically, through uh, a series of uh, risk assessments, it really became clear that the thing that's most at risk or has the highest risk are the things that are highest, highly centralized and highly networked, and that's your voter registration database. You get in there, think about if you're a ransomware operator, you know everybody cares about the election, you know that these systems are touching the Internet. What if you went in, locked up a database, a voter reg database, and demanded $3 million. I'm pretty sure a state would be incentivized to pay that. Now, it doesn't have to be like that. So we put a lot of effort against securing, understanding what the vulnerabilities are, shutting down uh, RDP or, or various ports and other things uh, so that the bad guys can't get into those systems. But then at the same time, also really stressing the value of resilience. And in this case, there's a resilience measure in just an analog paper backup of the voter edge database. Yeah, it's going to be a little bit more um, uh, tedious to scroll or, you know, uh, comb through and find the, the, the registered voters. But again, it gives you that failover that's that's effectively no fail. Now, if I'm thinking about the Russians, if I'm thinking about the Chinese, you know, we're pretty, you know, to conduct an activity at scale in an undetected manner across the country is, is tough. It's, there's no question. Plus, there's a lot of risk, particularly if you're talking a technical cybersecurity attack. So what, what I think, you know, one way that, that they could have a little, little bit of, you know, messing around with the system is, is just a really noisy, low-level campaign in a uh, key jurisdiction. And then that could then 
introduced the perception that the entire uh, national campaign is at as at uh, at risk. And, and so, again, what we're really trying to encourage here is these paper ballot backups have an analog process that you can go back. You can audit the process. Post-election audits are critical. You know, really just turn back the tape. We've got the receipts. Let's make sure that this um, that the integrity is built into the election as best as possible. And I suppose that that uh, the audits, like everything else that we're doing, means that we're not going to have projected winners quite as fast as we're used to. Yeah, and, and that's a uh, we're already seeing that happen in some of the primaries. You know, one thing that I think the American people uh, need a little bit of extra uh, work on right now. Is, is patience, particularly in, in, uh, in our elections, uh, instant gratification, unofficial results reported out that night, you know, November 3rd. I, I just, I'm not sure that's going to happen. It could take time to find out, you know, count all these other ballots. So that's, again, one thing that we want to push also is, you know, if the state has early voting, get out there and take advantage of that. Um, but again, patience. It's going to take some time to count all the ballots. It's going to take time to do the audits, certify, canvas and certify. Um, so just so patience here is uh, is going to be uh, pretty key. Well, something I'm I'm particularly impatient about is a, um, a COVID-19 vaccine, uh, which, you know, uh, there are a lot of efforts coming along. Uh, but there, there are persistent reports about government after government hacking the people who are developing and testing the, the vaccines and maybe doing other research on uh, uh, COVID-19 treatments and uh, the like. Uh, um, that also, you know, while you were fixing the election, uh, I guess it became your job to fix that as well. Uh, how bad are the intrusions and uh, are they just trying to find out where everybody else stands or are they actually trying to interfere with competing um, uh, health vent, uh, initiatives? Yeah. So this is a little bit of Casablanca here, right? It's like, I'm shocked to find hacking going on here. Um, yeah. you know, it, 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 the intelligence agencies of foreign governments are doing, I think what, what they've been tasked to do by, by their leadership. It's go out there and find out what's happening in that country, find out what their companies are doing, see if you can get the intellectual property. Uh, what, what we're really focusing on is is uh, the resilience of the systems that are going to be under stress here. And what I, what I mean is when you look at particularly ransomware attacks over the last couple years, the healthcare and public health sector has been at the very top of that list of of targeted sectors uh, alongside state and local governments and in and, and education. And to a certain extent, they're, they're not particularly stable. They're pretty fragile, in fact. And so what, what we're worried about is less about a confidentiality attack and more about an availability attack where somebody could come in, be poking around, looking for looking for intellectual property and just burn down the network, whether intentionally or accidentally. Um, so, again, really trying to bring in a set of companies, organizations and agencies into some of the services that we offer. A lot of the services that we offer to the election officials, uh, as it as it so happens, including vulnerability scanning, remote penetration testing, incident response. Um, so so that is uh, we we kicked that off in early March and we've rolled that up under our Operation Warp Speed. The initial concept was um, was called Project Taken, which is based on the Liam Neeson movie. Uh, and then we've been, you know, rolled into the bigger, bigger interagency effort uh, led by DOD and HHS. So, again, just trying to keep an eye out, give the the, the healthcare sector uh, support that they might need, 
And we've seen pretty good behavior. Uh, again, just like elections, the more they know about vulnerabilities that are out there, the, the reactions are improved. So, again, we've seen patching better almost than any other sector out there just over the last couple of months. So so my, I think some positive indications that, that the things we're doing are working. OK. And so the health industry is actually rising to the occasion because it's uh, there. They're, it's, it's a very odd industry, uh, a very compliance focused, uh, yeah. um, uh, very worried about uh, HIPAA. And yet, you know, all of the regulatory threats from HIPAA have not made it a technically sophisticated industry. Yeah. I, and I think just like elections, right, we still got a long way to go. Um, and, you know, by all means or things, you know, by no means are things locked down, but the behaviors are improving. And it's not just because anything, any one thing that we've done here at CISA, um, there really are a number of, you know, the true public private partnerships that, that we've, you know, pined for and almost lamented over the last couple of years. Um, have really taken off. There's, there's one effort called the Cyber Threat Intelligence League. Uh, that's bringing together security researchers, government agencies, uh, academia. Everybody's coming together, sharing information. We're getting pretty good outcomes. And again, we've done hundreds of vulnerability notifications um, based on folks that have signed up for our services. Uh, and again, we're seeing just based on our at least limited data set, um, you know, again, those behaviors are improving. So in this in this area, I, I had some experience a couple of years ago with some shocking um, IoT vulnerabilities in stuff that uh, that go into people's bodies uh, and are yeah. nonetheless hackle, hackable while they're there. Uh, and and I was struck by the fact that DHS was playing you know through its IoT security initiatives a pretty big role with FDA in trying to regulate uh, that. Uh, but IoT security just seems to get worse and worse. Uh, and uh, I think the, the that latest uh, uh, trick uh, vulnerability yeah. with which affected billions of uh, uh, devices uh, suggests that they're, we're not done securing uh, uh, the stuff that goes into our bodies. Uh, where does that all stand from DHS's point of view? Well, I, you know, when we look at this, it's it's more of an issue of, you know, almost you know, there's a decent parallel here to the recent mass shift to telework and this kind of rapid digital transformation. The concept is to get effectiveness and productivity as the top business imperative, security kind of follows along with it. Um, same thing goes with IoT. The concept is you get the product out, security comes second, third, fourth, fifth, or whatever. And moreover, a lot of the times what you see is these products are either designed, developed, or uh, deployed in a way that doesn't make them particularly easy to manage. So um, what we're really working with NIST, working with FDA in the case that you point out, and in the broader community, ramping up efforts, again, just to educate through uh, the development process and the deployment process to get things just better secured. There are a couple uh, legislative initiatives uh, underway that, that we think could could help, could make an impact. Um, but but this one, there's a really long tail on this because a lot of these IoT devices are either, uh, again, put in places that just make it hard to manage. They're designed for longer term, um, you know, not like our, our laptops that may only be around for a few years. Sometimes we're talking 10, 15 years. And then the last part of this is, is some of the companies that are developing and designing and rolling them out. Um, they might not be here next week. The benefit of Trek is that that, you know, the company that really manages that is still around. That's not always been the case. 
Yeah, no, that, that, that's, that's, that's the good news. The, the problem is nobody had looked at the proprietary code in 20 years, and suddenly yeah. uh, when they did, uh, it, it started to come apart. All right, I, so the, the other legislative uh, initiative that you've been pressing for is um, new subpoena authorities for, for CISA, uh, which I've already come out in favor of. But uh, I'd like to, if you could explain what it is that uh, you think CISA needs to be subpoenaing um, and why current law isn't, isn't good enough um, and where that stands legislatively, it'd be very helpful. Yeah, so – you know, great case is, is you already talked about IoT and FDA and even in the current COVID um, situation. You know, we can, through various scanning capabilities, Shodan and others, we are able to identify on the public-facing Internet um, vulnerabilities or vulnerable systems that might be out there, particularly those that pose a life safety issue. And so we do our scans. We can get an, an IP address, but that's about it. And, you know, an IP address that ties to an Internet service provider. It doesn't say who the organization is that manages the device, um, how to get in touch with the with the company or the person that manages the device. We're just left with an ISP uh, contact information. So we go to the ISPs. And the ISPs, sometimes they'll help. Sometimes they won't. They have their own reasons. Um so what, what well, we they, need, their, their, their problem, you know, to be fair to them, uh, they can talk to the customer, yeah. although that just costs them money. Uh, they can't yeah. tell you customer details because yeah. Congress, in its yeah. wisdom, passed a law that says never give information about customers to the government without a subpoena. That was yeah. a dumb law at the time. Uh, and it's particularly dumb now because the victims are the people whose information would be uh, passed on. And that information is not getting to you. Yeah. So that's the ECPA um, uh, prohibition against voluntary turning information over to the government. Right. Um, without unless you have the, the administrative subpoena uh, exception in, or exemption rather. And, and there are dozens, if not hundreds of examples of administrative subpoena authorities throughout the federal government. So we're not asking to, you know, amend ECPA uh, because that obviously is, is a significant undertaking. Um, but we are just asking to be added to that list of organizations or agencies that can use the administrative subpoena authority. Now, to go back real quickly to the ISP, you know, this is not, um, you know, we're not throwing the ISPs under the bus here because we, we have had a number of uh, examples where ISPs have gone to the customers and said, you've got a vulnerability here, you need to patch it. Uh, what we've seen is in some cases the customers thought that the agent or the ISP was trying to upsell them on cybersecurity services. So, <laughs> of course. You know, it's it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. So, again, we're just trying to simplify the process. We've been very uh, collaborative here with um, with privacy groups, with industry. In fact, I mean, look who's co-sponsoring the, the bill. It's called the Cybersecurity Vulnerability Identification Notification Act. We have Senator Wyden as a co-sponsor. So I think we've done our leg, you know, the appropriate legwork and homework, and we're hoping that this thing – uh, is able to uh, hop into some of the vehicles that will move over the summer, including perhaps the uh, National Defense Authorization Act. So it's out of committee on both sides of the uh, uh, the hill? Uh, yep. And, and I think, uh, you know, the NDAA conversations are ongoing over the weekend and this week. So, again, fingers crossed. This is this is a, a um, you know, in some sense, it, it's not that big of a deal. But in the other, it's, you know, this is really going to help us uh, be more effective and get out there uh, and help organizations manage their risk before it becomes a problem. 
Right. Uh, yeah, because, uh, you know, if 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 you've been compromised and and the malware is pinging out to uh, a known site, a C2 site, uh, you don't know it. And uh, uh, even though uh, uh, DHS can see the the ping, it doesn't know who actually has been compromised. And so this would give you a whole host of data that you could use to uh, uh, to make things um, uh, the the internet safer. And I I think the the national defense connection there is pretty clear. Uh, and so hopefully uh, uh, NDAA will include it. Yeah, and, and again, you know, we're just looking for contact information. There's no content um, in play here. It's just about letting us get in touch with the people that manage those organizations. All right. Well, here's a here's a here's a question I I've already asked uh, um, because uh, I covered this story I think last week. Uh, NSA is um, doing a pilot to provide secure DNS to defense companies uh, in the defense industrial base. Uh, and my question was, well, if this is such a good idea, why aren't we doing it for everybody? And of course, if we were going to do it for everybody, you'd be doing it. Uh, so here, here's my question. Uh, I, uh, are you going to start uh, down the same road that NSA has gone in terms of secure DNS? Yeah, D- protective DNS is a great thing. Um, in fact, uh, a month and a half or so ago, we issued an RFI, a request for information, um, to get a kind of sense of the market. So we've been working on a DNS, secure DNS concept and solution now going on for about a year, year and a half. So we got the RFI out, hope to get an RFP out in the, in the near future. But our, our authorities and the funding we have available are right now just limited to uh, the federal executive civilian branch agencies. Um, we could down the road um, fold in government contractors. Again, I, I think that, you know, a, a lot of the outsourcing and kind of managed service providers and third party risk activity makes that a smart uh, expansion of services. The critical infrastructure community, uh, we're, we're not uh, we don't a have the authorities or B have the funding to roll that out just yet. But in the meantime, there are plenty of services out there. Quad DNS. I'm sorry, Quad Nine. Uh, by right. the Global Cybersecurity uh, Cyber Alliance, um, it's a great service. I mean, I use that on all my stuff at home. So uh, again, it's just a it, it's a good thing to do. It particularly, you know, you already talked about the malware beaconing out. It's the best way to see one of the best ways, rather, to see uh, it, it low, no cost, um, you know, malware communication with C2 infrastructure. So if people are waiting or, or if they want that experience now, they can they can go to Quad Nine. I think that that's if you search for Quad Nine, you probably find the Global Cyber Alliance. Well, I mean, it's easier. It's it's a lot easier than that, right? You just pull up whatever it's whether it's your smart TV or whatever. Just go to the DNS settings and and enter in nine 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 nine. Okay, I, even I can do that. <laughs> All right. Um, uh, other stuff that, uh, that that that's been in the news. Uh, uh, there was uh, some indication that Google Analytics is being used to uh, um, exfiltrate data, uh, uh, or or uh, maybe and maybe I'm wrong. It, it, it was Google Analytics sitting on people's websites was being used to infect visitors uh, because audio uh, antivirus software always whitelisted 
Google Analytics and didn't worry about its traffic. Uh, is that is, is that a major thing to be concerned about or is this just one more um, root of uh, infection? Well, you know, I'm not sure I can go as far to say is this something to be really super concerned about. I, I We're still looking into this and it is based on um based on, you know, just on its face, it's like, oh, that's interesting. Well, you know, how do we monitor for this? How do we detect this sort of activity? There are a couple uh, techniques that you can use. I'm not going to get into the nuts and bolts of those right Mm -hmm. now. Um, But it it is, this is the sort of behavior that add this, you know, the bad guys are just continuing to find uh, ways to exploit um, whether it's existing services or just continue to be creative. So uh, just, you know, one more thing we got to worry about. Last question. You've been doing this job for how long now? Three years? Four? Uh, I am a, yeah, I don't know, it feels like three decades, but uh, yeah, a little over three years. So what's changed since you started this job other than the fact you're, you know, you're losing your hair and what's left is going to be turning gray soon. Uh, I, so it's definitely turning gray. I have not gotten a haircut in about uh, four months. So it's, it's, I have a, a veritable mane right now. Um, but look, you know, it, it, it's a good question, particularly when you think about what, what this week past weekend was, it was the third anniversary of the not Petcha attack. Right. Um, so what has changed in that intervening period? Well, I think for sure, uh, awareness of cybersecurity risk management has increased, particularly in the executive branch. Look, you don't need to tell a CISO or an IT, you know, an InfoSec administrator or, or specialist that, that what they do matters. Um, but they need continued support from the C-suite, from the general counsels. Um, that is where we're putting a lot of effort right now. But then when you just boil it back down to the basics, particularly when you look at ransomware, um, a couple things that we take away. Windows administration is absolutely critical. So, you know, go go get yourself a good Windows administrator. Um, lock down your domain controllers. Those are the things that we're seeing ransomware actors exploit. That's what the NotPetya um, uh, malware really uh, crushed, particularly when you think about Maersk. Um, they were lucky to find one DC or domain controller sitting in, in Africa somewhere. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, um, really just putting a lot of effort into understanding third party risk and supply chain. That's what to me is probably one of the most stark differences between now and three years ago. Supply chain and third party risk management is something, a huge area of investment, a huge area of opportunity in, in the, in the coming years. Again, when you think about NotPetya, they compromised a tax, um, a, a tax software that was required. Um, I think we were talking about earlier, uh, or saw in the news clip somewhere about a, uh, a Chinese company or Chinese tax uh, requirement. Those are the avenues that the bad guys are using. The Chinese used it in the Cloud Hopper APT 10 attacks from uh, that we uh, the the, uh, the DOJ announced indictments back in December of 2018. Um, it's kind of like a, a Willie Sutton joke, right? Why do you go hit an MSP or you know a required so party? Is, yeah. Yep, that's where the data yeah. is. Like so I, I, I we 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 talked a little bit about that um, uh, uh, Chinese text software, and I suggested that it was maybe the the Chinese learning the lesson of NotPetya that uh, if you put stuff in text software, you can 
get enormous range uh, uh, for your malware. Uh, but instead of breaking everybody's systems, which is a thoroughly Russian thing to do, they decided to instead to exploit them, which, you know, is more of a Chinese thing. Um, uh, so, yeah, I think we, we are seeing this. I, I actually want to offer one more thing that has changed a lot in three years. Um, uh, that's probably the three years where DHS's reputation in the tech community for cybersecurity has gone up the most. And, you know, I, I when I was there, it couldn't have gotten lower. Um, uh, but it has been steadily rising, and you have really contributed a lot to the credibility of DHS and CISA as a player and a trusted source for information in cybersecurity. So, um, you know, thank you for your service. Yeah, no, I appreciate that, Stuart. And, you know, the one thing I'll say, kind of my key takeaway is we've we've invested, and I personally invest a lot of time in the softer skills um, engaging the community, understanding what their challenges are, not trying to have a bunch of technical solutions, but but again, just bringing folks together, understanding what their challenges are, um, understanding why they might not want to work with us, and and putting putting real uh, calories against that. Good to hear yep. though that that you think it's paying off. <laughs> oh, it it absolutely is. All right, Chris Krebs, thanks. Uh, Maury Shank, James Caravano, Nick Weaver, thanks to you as well. This has been episode 322 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Please do. Send guest suggestions uh, to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. You can follow me at Stuart Baker on Twitter, and I occasionally will ask people to vote on the stories we ought to cover. Uh, leave us a review. I, uh, we got one that I really love. Uh, um, uh, five stars uh, for somebody who, who says, uh, I'm a European. I work in tech. I donate to the EFF and the ACLU, and I live in the Bay Area. In short, everything the host criticizes. However, the show constantly challenges my assumptions, and the guests are always informative and entertaining. There are a few podcasts I listen to religiously every week, but this is one of them. Uh, uh, thank you. That's uh, you're of my core demographic, because if I only spoke to uh, conservatives, uh, I'd only have four listeners. Uh, so please join us again next week as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.